Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. So how was your Thanksgiving, Mike? My Thanksgiving was pretty good. It was a it was baby's first Thanksgiving. Yeah, that's nice. Did you feed her lots of tofurkey? Yes. Yeah, she ate <laughs> I I I put the tofurkey in the magic bullet and that's all she ate. Oh. No, perfect. she pretty much stuck to baby food while I I went for I ate an entire tofurkey package. You did by yourself? In one shot, yeah. Oh, that's kind of gross. Yeah. <laughs> It's the best part. I is, mean, the it, quantity, the just the sheer quantity of. It's not that big. Like it says in the box, it serves. Oh. It says in the box, it serves eight, and I'm like, eight Wizard of Oz munchkins, maybe. Eight very dainty, light eaters. <laughs> well, not that, Wisconsin uh, style. I mean, that's what they think about vegetarians. You know, it's always like, oh, well, he's a vegetarian. He must be healthy. It's like, nah, that's that's not really that's not really it. And, uh, but anyway, it was a wonderful Thanksgiving. I enjoyed the. Uh, the crap out of some tofurkey, a whole package. All I like right. that so much. Excellent. How was yours, Wendy? It was great. Thank you. Also ate excessively. You ate a whole tofurkey too? Um, No, I actually had real turkey. Okay. Not too much turkey, but for me, the big thing is the side dishes. Okay. You so- know, the candied yams and all the different potatoes and corn and cranberries. Yes, I like the canned cranberries. All right. So I'm glad somebody does. I'm one of those and my sister does too. But you also like so. you also like candy corn, so I don't know. I can t- I can't trust you. I do. I'm eating some right now. In fact, <laughs> you are eating candy corn. Oh my god! Like I'm seeing this. <laughs> like I'm seeing this over Skype, guys, and I can't stop her because I'm not there. I can't. She's eating the candy corn. Mm, ah! So sweet and delicious in my mouth. Oh god. <laughs> so anyway, yes, it was a great Thanksgiving. And now the holidays are rolling up quickly. They are. like The year end is upon us almost. Yeah, 2016 has whizzed by. Mm, Yeah, indeed. And we're already at episode 120. That's right. So we also, before we get to the interview today, want to invite anyone who uses Instagram to follow our Instagram account, which is at other side podcast. Yet another way to communicate with us and keep in touch and we yeah. can, uh, follow you back and see what you're up to as well. Yeah. And take a haunted picture. Like if you have any ghost photos, we'll even take your orb photos. We will. But take your orb photo and tag us in the picture so we can take a look. And the, <laughs> the best haunted pictures, you know, we'll talk about in the podcast and we'll feature them on the website, othersidepodcast.com. There you go. Uh, you know, the guest today is somebody that we've been trying to have on the podcast for a long time. And we just haven't been able to get the schedules working. But he is the proprietor of a cool place in the Wisconsin Dells. So everybody, Wisconsin Dells is like where people go on vacation in Wisconsin. Water, it's got huge water parks and just, it's basically the tourist trap of Wisconsin. But it has some really cool stuff too, like a Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. It's got a UFO museum, uh, like a wizard quest. It's just a place you go, you bring the kids and everything during the summertime. It's a fun, affordable vacation. Right. So anyway, so our guy has this place called Mr. Marvel's Wondertorium in the Wisconsin Dells. And Logan Marvel, the proprietor, the owner of the place, he is a longtime circus sideshow performer. And he performs a sideshow act for you every time you go to the Wondertorium. So it was a really special treat 
to be able to have him on the show. I've been trying to get it because I don't have enough circus people in my life. All right. Well, why don't we take a listen to the interview and see what he's got to say? Today, we welcome Logan Marvel, proprietor of Mr. Marvel's Wondertorium in the Wisconsin Dells. Logan is a sideshow performer, paranormal adventurer, and all-around renaissance man. Welcome to the show, Logan. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And so, uh, Allison from Milwaukee Ghosts, Allison Jorland, is joining us today as well. Hello, Allison. Hi, everybody. Okay. Hi, Logan. Hello, how are you? Oh, I'm great. I'm just so excited to have you on the show. I'm excited to finally be on the show. Yes, we've been talking about it for a while, and let's talk about why we were interested in it. So, Allison, you have been to the Wondertorium. I have. Tell us a little bit about the things you can find there. Okay, well, um, I have had the pleasure of stepping on Logan's neck and grinding his face into glass. Not once, but twice. Oh, that sounds excellent. And, you know, it's a good time anytime I get to step on a guy's neck. That's how I know things are really happening. (laughs) Right. So, Logan, real quick. How does it happen that someone can go to the Wondertorium and step on your neck into broken glass? Well, come down to the Wisconsin Dells. We're in downtown Dells. And we do a guided tour through a museum of oddities. And then after the tour, we do a live circus stunt show. And one of the most popular acts is broken glass walking. But I wanted to take it up a notch because you can see broken glass walking, you know, a lot of the different places throughout the country on street corners on America's Got Talent. And I looked up an old bit. In my bedroom. In your bedroom. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. In the kitchen, unexpectedly. Sometimes not always so pleasant. Um, and I just looked up an old bit of a performer who put put his face in a pile of broken glass. I said, I haven't seen anyone do that for a while. I want to do that. And then I thought, well, what if I have someone stand on my head? And then when... Um, yeah. My sister and I parted ways professionally. She went on, tw- she kept touring, and I came to Wisconsin to establish a auditorium. I no longer had an assistant. I thought, well, how about an audience member stand on my head? That's a perfect, you know, Instagram moment right there. And um, so <laughs> I'm out to the auditorium. Every show, somebody's going to stand on my head, and it could just be you. Oh my gosh. That and it's like a- so much fun. So before we get to how you got to the auditorium, Let's probably start a little bit with where are you from originally, Logan, that uh, you, you felt the, the pull of the circus life? Well, I was born in a small town in Ohio where everybody was either Amish, Mormon, or Guatemalan. And uh, okay. made a very interesting dynamic. And um, from when I was little, my great-grandmothers lived next door to each other in a small town down the road called Caddis, Ohio. And my Aunt Mary was the adventurer in the family. And in reality, she probably had never left within 70 miles of the town. And uh, I just, and I don't know how it started, but my Aunt Mary and I decided every fall, starting the age of three, we would have Logan and Mary's fair. And I learned magic tricks, and I trained the dog and the rabbit to get along with each other. We made carnival games. And that essentially became our family reunion. And everybody would come out um, once a year for Logan and Mary's Fair. And then, I want to go to Logan and Mary's Fair. Right? It was a great it's time. It's so amazing. Uh, it sounds so cute. Yeah. Okay, go on. I, I want to hear more. No. Hear so that went on. So I, I, probably I was 10 or so when my great-grandmother, ended up, uh, Wilma, ended up passing away. And it just kind of never left. 
and I circuses would appear in town and I would go see them and I was just enthralled and I just I always felt like that was what I was you know destined to do you know I looked in the mirror and I saw a circus person and it felt right and I started training when I was 12 years old like professionally training when I was 12. When you mean by professionally training, okay, so so let's go back here. So when you, you looked in the mirror, first of all, it's just a great quote. When I looked in the mirror, I saw a circus person, baby. And <laughs> like, so that's, that's what you had to tell, you know, it's like when you're leaving town or whatever, it's like, mm, you knew what you were getting into when you got into a relationship with a circus person. But you look in the mirror, see a circus person, and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to go join. Now, Pinocchio could just get up and run away and, and join the circus. But how does a 12-year-old in Ohio join the circus? Like, where do you go? Who do you call? P.T. Right. Barnum's we, dead. We want practical knowledge here. Right. So if you look in the mirror and see a circus person out there, listeners, how would you go and, and join up? So how did you get involved? Well, there's no easy way to do it. Circus people essentially see the world in two halves. There's circus people and then there's townies. And anybody who's not born to a circus is a townie, and they're highly skeptical of townies, especially people who are wanting to join the show, because lots of people fall in love with the romance of the idea of running away at the circus, but they get out there, and it's brutally hard. At times, borderline awful, and they don't last. So they don't like to waste their time in helping a new person. Sure. So I started training myself. When I was 12, I would stretch four hours a day, um, because I knew I... I wanted to be a contortionist. And I stretched four hours oh, okay. every night. Like like a yoga master. Right, exactly. Exactly. And I would usually put in like two movies and I would watch the movies as I was stretching. And then when the two movies finished, I don't, you know, I was done. Are there any movies that are better for stretching than other movies? Like some <laughs> yeah, movies you're like, Yeah, we have to know right? this. I could, um, <laughs> I, could, I could really stretch the Titanic three and a half hours of Leo. <laughs> makes you want to stretch. <laughs> makes me want to stretch. I couldn't stretch anything super suspenseful because I would get so into the storyline, I would forget about stretching. So there were like no like psychological thrillers. Uh, okay. I really liked and, and any, no like slashers either. Right, anything that was like movie musical, especially kind of a doll movie musical, like from the fifties, worked out really well um, because then I could oh, okay. kind of drift in and out and just listen to the music and. That was my preferred genre for contortion. You really stretched to br- to Brigadoon, or, or right, like exactly. Homer or the Music Man. Yeah, I don't know. The Music Man's pretty exciting. He said dull. <laughs> oh, okay. And, and things don't get dull in River City. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so okay, all right. So twelve years old, you figure you want to be a contortionist. Yeah. Now, were there any particular famous contortionists that you were like, I want to be like that guy? Like, did you see a contortionist or something that affected you in a way that this is why I want to, my particular talent could be that I could put myself into a little box? Yeah, um, there were, um, Daniel Browning Smith, who is a few years older than me, our first, I should say my first half of my professional life, we were very similar. Um, we worked for a lot of the same venues and he, I would see him, uh, on TV and, um, internet. And I really enjoyed that he was both, you know, a front-bending and a back-bending contortionist, which is very rare to see. Because usually you're a female, that means your contortion's all based off of back-bends. means it's easier for a female to do back-bends. And then if you're a male, you're usually a front-bend contortionist, which is things based off front-bends, like putting your feet behind your head, things like that. 
And I really, really liked how he blended those styles. And uh, then collectively, the entire nation of Mongolia. In Mongolia, essentially, <laughs> the national sport is contortion. You grow up, you know, your grandma will teach you contortion like we throw a ball in the backyard. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah. I love Mongolia because of the one of my favorite cryptids, the Mongolian deathworm. But I had no idea. Sure, and I love Mongolian barbecue. <laughs> there and, we go. And also, what was the name of the contortionist that you mentioned? Daniel Smith. Danny Smith. Danny the Rubber Boy. Yeah, he was he... the host of Stanley Superhuman. Right with Stan Lee. Did you ever see that, Mike? That's well, yeah. a great show. Yes. With... Okay. Yeah. So, so now I know who you're talking right. about. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I love that guy. Yeah. So he was kind of my hero before he was super famous. And I just thought that was going to be the, my, my set career path was going to be a contortionist. Uh, mostly, I thought it was cool looking. And I could train myself because you don't need any fancy equipment. It's like why so many people are good at, like, soccer is such an inter- internationally popular sport because all you need is the ball. Right. You don't need pads. Or, you know, and it's why hockey is always, like a rich kid in Canadian sport. Yeah. Because you need all the pads. You need a pad. Like, contortionist, all you need is a 50s Hollywood musical and some time, and you can do it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and that's all that happened. So that was my first thing was contortion. So how long between when you first started contortioning, you know, when you're 12 years old, you start stretching four hours a day and really putting the time and effort into, into doing it. How long until your first professional performance as a contortionist? I was 15 years old when I started working okay. professionally. Wow, 15. 15. So, so th- three years of stretching. Three years of stretching. And how did you find the circus then? Did they have open tryouts? Did you find it on the internet? Was it on Craigslist or in like some kind of like they're like circus tryouts Friday at six? <laughs> well, it was a combination of working on the internet. And ironically, one of the only places with a good database of circuses was PETA's website encouraging people to protest the circus. So I would just like find their protest list and find out where the circuses were. Ah, so so PETA strikes again. So PETA strikes again. Yes. PETA made made your career possible. That's thank you, PETA. Thank you, Andrew Newkirk. Thank you. And uh so I would kinda use that as a starting point for the little shows. And then I was I was ballsy. I was sending like videos out to like Kirk Disley and Ringling Brothers and Biden Bailey. And I just kept going until somebody said, hi, how are you? And that actually ended up on a little show called The Pendrix Brothers, which I'd end up working for a few years later down the road. Uh, but when I made that first friend, and then all of a sudden opened up this world of possibilities. And he said, oh, you know, my Aunt Myra does distortion. And then her, you know, sister's brother's everybody who's circusing key related somehow owns a show and he needs help. And so that's how I started. And I would start to work, you know, four or five dates for this company or six to seven dates for this person, which was wonderful because I got to work through this whole variety of shows, temporary shows, down to mom and pop shows, which really made me a lot more versatile as a performer because it's very easy I think in this day and age to kind of um, put yourself in a corner performance-wise in circus because circus is changing so much and not being able to adapt to, you know, working in a, from a beautiful five-star theater, the next day working in a sheep bar in North Dakota. You have to be able, if you want to make a living, you have to be able to take it all. To adapt. You got to be able to improvise if you're right. going to be in the circus. 
You right. got to be cool with improvisation. And you know, if you're a contortionist, you got to be flexible <laughs> <laughs> in so many ways. Okay, so 15 years old, your first professional performance with the circus. Now, you didn't actually just run away and join the circus, or did you? Did you? Kind of in between. It was a well calculated runaway effort. That's what I always say. It took you know thousands of hours to be planning, and then I just kind of plunged into it. And um, with my parents' mixed blessing, now they kind of figured, oh, let him go for two weeks. He's a lazy kid. He'll be back. <laughs> Making circus is hard work. And I didn't mind it at all. I loved every second of it. He was doing sledgehammers. Or... At one point, I was living underneath a semi-truck, you know? And no matter how As awful or gritty it was, I just fell in love with it more and more. And the incredible people and the stories and the history that made it up. And, you know, I've never seen a business where you, you could have your heroes. You know, if you're into sports, LeBron James or, you know, if George Clooney is your hero. I've never seen a business where you can jump in the industry and then all of a sudden become friends with your mentors and your heroes like that. That's true. It'd be hard to meet George Clooney. And that's how the circus is. Well, let's get into some of those stories. I want to know about some of the people you've met and, you know, anything circus lore related or paranormal circus lore related, even better. Well, I was going to say, like, what do you think is the top misconception people have about the circus? You know, when you think about circus lore and like, what do you think is the number one thing that people ask you about the circus? And you're like, no, dude, you're totally wrong. The two things I get asked most often now are the animals abuse, which I have never. The PETA connection. By by PETA. And of all the years I've worked for circus and all of the people I've known, I've only ever seen one animal mistreated. Generally, and I'll tell you a story. When I worked for Ringling Brothers in Barnum and Bailey, we traveled, they still traveled by train. And we were on our way into New Jersey. And one of the horses uh, got colic on the train. They stopped that train in the middle of New Jersey, had a veterinarian out there that horse off and in medical treatment, even though they knew they were not only holding up the railroad, we had freight trains behind us that could no longer get through, where we were potentially going to miss our opening window to get into set up on time to get this horse health care. Cut to when we were in Mexico and a goat farmer threw a rock in and hit a Chinese performer in the head, they were told to suck it up. Those animals were treated 10 times better than the people were any day on almost every show I was on. I think, you know, people worry that anytime a, an animal is involved in like performance, there, there's the potential for abuse. But what you're telling us is there's also the potential for kindness and for relationships between the humans and the animals. Completely. All right. So that's the first thing is that animal abuse yeah. is not as widespread as you'd be led no. to believe. And what's the second thing you think is the biggest misconception? People always ask, do you get paid? And I don't understand how I think we make a living if we don't get paid. That, you know, we just show up in a town and people just throw food at us or give us gas, which would be wonderful. (laughs) Um, But people don't see it as a legitimate career or a legitimate art form. So they assume that, you know, you're not getting paid or you're pulling something shady to make money. And that's a pretty unique American problem. You know, throughout most of the world, in Europe, uh, South America, circus is very well regarded. Almost. You know, in Europe, it's like the opera or the ballet. 
But in South America, it is the event. And not only is it the event, you might have that thing as an event 10 times in two months. It's not uncommon for, you know, a South American city to get a, cir- a new circus every week. And you will go to every new circus every week. I can see that. Like, oh, you get paid? Yeah, yeah. I get paid. Otherwise, how does Logan, how does Logan feed himself, man? Well, yeah, you know, even my own family sometimes. You know, I don't, this was maybe a, a Christmas or two ago, and I had an aunt who said, but what are you going to do? You know, you really need something else. And I just thought, I've done circus since I was like, you know, before I could drive. And I, you know, and it's still, it's still supporting me in one way or another. And I looked at her and I said, what did you go to college for? I did so hard. And I said, how's an art degree treating you at Morgan Stanley? Are you enjoying your life? And that kind of shut her up. Right. You know, if you sell to like, my backup plan is dying penniless and still happier than you. <laughs> yeah. That's how you shut them up. <laughs> That's exactly right. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Logan, you're traveling with the circus. You get involved. You get in there. You start, you're canceling people's misconceptions out. Mm-hmm. And what's your favorite piece of circus lore or something that you discovered when you were like, I can't believe this is true? You know, when you first heard the story, you were like, holy cow, I understand the other side now. Maybe that's a little too much. But. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think one of my most just awe moments was I was sitting at a Chinese buffet with a bunch of performers. But, you know, I was surrounded by people who were 12th generation circus, 17th generation circus, 5th generation circus. And at that moment, I think it was the first time I realized just the power of circus, that it is such a powerful art form that it can captivate a family for the last 17 generations. And everybody still works there. And I can't think of another family in another business that has been in the business for 17 generations. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. 17 generations. Mm -hmm. And a generation is generally thought to be like 20 years. 30 years. So 20, 30 times 17. Right. So that's back to the old country. (laughs) Yeah. That's circus back to the old country. That's, That's exceptional. Yeah, and a lot of the families do. Come, a lot of the families come straight from the court jester still. Yeah, and at that moment, oh. I realized that I had something very important in my hands. And not that I'm the only person protecting the art form. I'm not saying that at all. But I think everybody who is in the business, whether it's circus or sideshow, they have a very important mission to keep it alive for the the people who gave their lives to this art form before us. And especially in sideshow, that's kind of my specialty. Right. And let's get into the difference between the circus and the sideshow. Yeah. So uh, people think of the circus, they think of the, you know, they think of the big top, they think of the elephant standing on two legs, crushing his man to death. They think of Siegfried and Roy getting eaten. No, but, but they think about that, the three rings and stuff like that as compared right. to the, the sideshow. So what traditionally is a sideshow? So a sideshow started in the form we know of it today in the late 1700s, the early 1800s. And it was wealthy people having collections in their house. You know, they would travel the world, or they would know people travel the world, and they would have drunken heads in their house, or paintings, or musical gemstones, or a meteorite. And then people started to charge admission to their houses. And then the Dime Museum was born. And these were the first public museums. And that's where the sideshow format was really perfected. The first public museums are based on collections that people had in their homes. Right. And so, right. And so they die and then they'd leave them and they kind of create the museum. Like I discovered that when I visited the British Museum for the first time. It was yeah. like, oh, so the, 
the British Museum was originally just like a collection in some dude's house. So it was like a bunch of antiquarians that got together. Yeah, and, and he's like, okay, and, and let's create this. So what we think of as this cultural institution really just came from a few people who were interested in the first place. And you're, and you're saying, that, so this is how sideshows developed as well. Right, yeah. Because first public you know, museum facilities, often called dime museums today, they, all these other wealthy people's museums start to outshine out to each other. And they bring in novelty entertainers. They bring in the fire eaters, the sword swallowers, the bearded ladies. And the dime museum was born. Then P.T. Barnum came. People always think of P.T. Barnum, Barnum Bailey Circus. Circus mm-hmm. came very late in his life. He was famous for being a museum man when he was alive. And wow. he ran the American Museum. And he perfected that format. He had beluga whales in the basement with bearded ladies eating fire under dinosaur skeletons. At a Broadway show on the top theater, on the top floor of the top theater. And early circuses started to notice these museums and they started to carry the museum with them. And that's how the circus sideshow was born. Okay, so it's like a traveling museum of oddity. Right. Yeah. And it's changed quite a bit. So this is happening when we think about P.T. Barnum, that's right around the middle of the 19th century, right? Yeah, right around the middle. Of the 19th century. And all I can think about now is um, I'm thinking about Milwaukee's connection to that and how Harry Houdini got his start here in Milwaukee, actually, uh, at one of those dime museums. Right. So the sideshow, you know, evolved from those dime museums. Today we call it a 10-in-1, which is 10 live acts under one stage. And that's the most popular form of sideshow we think of, the, the sword swallows, the fire eaters, the bear ladies. So the sideshow was designed to get an extra dime out of the circus patron. Usually a quick show, in and out, meaning they want to move people in and out as fast as they can. Whereas a circus show, I always define a circus as three or more performers with acts consisting of at least, you know, two of these, two or three of these categories. You have acrobats, you have aerialists, you have comedians, and clowns quite often, or animal acts. I always say about, if you get three of those categories, you're a circus. Regardless if you're indoors or under a big top, big show or little show, that's kind of my defining metric for a circus. I like that too. The idea of the sideshow was just developed to get an extra dime out of people. Yeah. You know, because they're like, hey, you know, because you paid, it's, it's like an add on. You know, exactly. today, when it's like, hey, you want some extra cheese on it? Well, okay. <laughs> and then so people just pay for it or super. It's, it's right. the, hey, you want to step on a guy's neck? Right. Yes, I do. <laughs> the circus sideshow is the original supersize. It is Absolutely. the original supersize. And it was quite an efficient <laughs> one. Sometimes they would pay the entire week's salary from the sideshow income for the whole show. When we think about these sideshows, well, the first thing that comes to mind is like Todd Browning's Freaks. Right. Yeah. And you think about the exploitation of people who are, um, well, maybe who have had unfortunate upbringings or, you know, like medical. Right. Like wonders. the elephant man. Like the, elef- um, right. yeah, the I, elephant. You might man. also think of um, that great X-Files episode, Humbug, one mm-hmm. of my favorites. With Jim Rose and his geek. Yeah. Jim Rose uh, and his circus. Right. And, you know, if you started as a contortionist, Logan, and eventually became a sideshow specialist. Yeah. How did you move from that? Like the contortion? I mean, are contortionists considered part of the sideshow? Or would, would contortionists go into the circus? Traditionally, a lot of big top contortionists did work in both. And they would always say that circus contortion was prettier and sideshow contortion was creepier. And um, so as a contortionist, that was a very natural transition for me. And I was actually, by the time I was working for a, a theater, um, 
production. Uh, it was a circus, but it was a theater uh, version. And we played very nice venues and very well paid. Probably the best paying job, best benefits I've ever had. But I was kind of burnt out. I was kind of sick of contemporary circus. And I answered an ad online on sideshowworld.com. I didn't even realize sideshows were still a thing at this point. Or that there was a sideshowworld.com, <laughs> right? I am going to immediately. <laughs> That's right. Immediately after the podcast. All right, guys, everybody, page everybody to sideshowworld.com right now. <laughs> yes. It is a treasure trove of information. And I saw there was an ad, you know, on there that Ward Hall, whom the name meant nothing to me at the time, was looking for performers for the next year. And I called him. I said, this is my skill set. Could you train me to do a sideshow? And he goes, well, I can't train you next year, but if you get here in a couple of weeks, yeah, I can train you. That's what I did. I left early and joined up with him at the Ohio State Fair. Wait, so you, you ran away from the circus to join the circus? I, I did. <laughs> in the sideshow. Oh, that's great. <laughs> exactly. And that's we were rolling up to it. And um, my father was driving me, and there was a big top on the ground, and a little midget man who looked like he was 120 years old standing there. And I said, that is my new home. Like Billy Barty or something like that. <laughs> Just like, welcome, Logan. <laughs> it was very similar. That was not far off. And that was, you know, turned out to be the worst paying job of my life and the hardest living condition doing 20 shows a day. But I loved it. 20 shows a day. Woo. 20 shows a day. And that was on a good day. In the Minnesota State Fair, we pumped out 35 shows a day quite often. And it was brutal. Oh, and wow, those Minnesotans work you to the bone. I was there two years, and by, when I left there, I was in seven of the 12 acts doing that 30 times a day. And Ward Hall, who owns it, he, you know, he's regarded as the king of the sideshow, is the last of the old-time sideshow owners well let's talk about some of the people that you've met i want to hear yeah. more about that or even the people who are i guess are there famous sideshow people like when i think of famous sideshow people the only people i even know about are the people from the jim rose circus right you know, as being a 90s teenager like that was something because it was on Lollapalooza and everything so i'd be interested to know like you've met the stars of the sideshow like like who are they yeah um what i'm very blessed that I am alive when I am because I know the the modern sideshow, you know, if you want to call them stars, it'd be a sideshow star today. But I was also meeting the last of the old timers before they were passing away. And two of my very favorite people, and actually my earliest memory of television was dad watching a documentary about Priscilla the Monkey Girl and Emmett the Alligator Skin Boy. Oh, I remember Emmett the Alligator Skin Boy. Yeah, and they were married, and I don't remember how old I was. I couldn't have been very old. I was three or four, and my dad was watching it. And I just thought, how could somebody be half alligator and half man or boy? I thought, who would marry an alligator? That's a good point. It was completely (laughs) bewildering to me. And so they were, uh, they billed themselves as the world's strangest married couple. And Emmett was covered in thick, peculiar like skin from head to toe. Very handsome. His face, you wouldn't, you know, if he had long sleeves and pants on, you would think he was a TV news anchor. And his wife, he still loved, um, originally born Priscilla Rosser after she was adopted, I guess. Rosser was her adopted name. But she was built as the monkey woman, and she had a beard and two rows of teeth and hair all over her body. 
and they fell in love at a young age. Did she have lycanthropy? Not lycanthropy. I forgot what it's, the actual condition is called. Because, but it it's was mistaken, and people think that you well, know no, maybe I know the she, idea for uh, werewolves came from that. I know that she's not a werewolf, right? Right. But there's like there's a the Mexican aerialists, the tra- the Mexican trapeze family, and they're all. Everybody has that. The, even the kids have the big beards and stuff right, like absolutely. that. Absolutely. And so I was thinking that Priscilla might be that too. Right. She, I don't know her medical condition. She very easily fits in to that, you know, general definition. But I don't know if medically that's actually what caused it. Okay. And they did. They had two children between them, but they were the happiest married couple, I think, in all of history. Priscilla used to joke with him and say, "You know, Emmy, I'm going to dye my hair blonde and shave my beard off tomorrow." And he said, Priscilla, if you do that, I'm going to walk out on you. I fell in love with you the way you are, and you'll stay that way till I die. And she did. She kept that beard till he passed away. And she promptly shaved it, but she she kept her end of the promise. And, you know, she died a few years after him, but I still say she died of a broken heart. She would just, you know, they had a little house in Gibtown, Florida, which is where most sideshow people lived. And she would turn on their old 1930s and 40s music and she would just dance even without him just like they did every night oh man well that's a wonderful story and so that's a couple that you got to meet when you got involved in the sideshow yes i was very fortunate i met them when i was younger before i was even interested in it and then i got to meet priscilla i got to really meet priscilla as i was getting involved in the business and becoming interested um i met passed away in the late 90s her husband, and they were wonderful. And then I, I always kind of see them as the old guard of human oddities. And we have this whole fantastic new guard of physically wonderful people, physically different people who are joining the scientists again. Because that did disappear mm-hmm. for quite a while. I worked with um, the girl who taught me to walk on broken glass, um, little crystal stick. She stands only 27 inches tall. Oh, 27 inches tall. Is that as tall as... Uh... Vern Troyer, or I mean, the guy that played Many Me, and now he's on TV and stuff like that. Like right. he's, right. he's that same kind of like totally small. Like yeah, 27. yeah. Like yeah. even beyond uh, what General Tom Thumb was, right? I mean, I I don't know what his his height was. Right, I believe I remember her telling me she wasn't a midget or a dwarf medically. That she had another unrelated condition that stunted her growth, but she didn't actually suffer from a form of dwarfism, which I find fascinating. But she's super skilled as a performer. Escapes from little straight jackets and swallows balloons and eats fire. And when oh, I that's awesome. Yeah. And that's another misconception about sideshow. People think you just walk in and gawk at people. When if you know, generally you're gonna see somebody do something incredible with a whole lot less than you. Like Jeannie Khomeini was born without a lower half and she would do one arm stands and do somersaults across the stage. And so you would see the best of the human spirit of these people overcoming all kinds of odds, doing things that you can't even do necessarily, and they have a whole lot less body. Or sometimes, you know, a few extra pieces. Um, really, and that's what I find so inspirational about Sideshow, was that the magic was still, is still there. It's people believing in themselves so much, you know, that they're going to learn to juggle, you know, a soccer ball from their three legs back and forth. Right. That's an awesome thing to say, too. Like when I was talking about when we think of the sideshow, we think of the elephant man. So mm-hmm. you're just exploiting somebody with unfortunate circumstances. But a lot of times it's the victory of the human spirit almost that even if they like a person born without a lower half of the body can do amazing things with their arms. And, and right. stuff. You know, I, I think about 
I was just watching uh, Inside Edition last night because it was <laughs> it was on at midnight where we are and we were staying up and watching Inside Edition and he talked about a gymnast who didn't have legs and she's obviously she's built like a you know a, a brick latrine and the way she just can fly around and stuff like that like that's the triumph of right. saying whatever life brings me I am going to do something amazing and I think when we talk about misconceptions of the circus and the sideshow that's a good one right there just to say like, when you say like you talk about this little woman, 27 inches tall, and she can eat fire. You know, I'm twice her size. I, you ain't going to see me eat fire anytime That's right. soon. That's right. And I love that during this conversation, we're, we're getting the two sides. Because, you know, we talked about animal abuse earlier. And, and certainly there are examples of animal sure. abuse mm-hmm. uh, when, when you have animals in performance. But, you know, you gave us another perspective on it. And now you're giving us another perspective on sideshow performance. Right. And that's the beauty of humanity and, and the ugliness, you know, right. is, is that we're capable of, of both things to extraordinary lengths and depths. You know, are there any particular kind of, you know, superstitions or lore about the sideshow or the circus that yeah. have paranormal origins? Yeah, the paranormal. So, aliens love traveling shows. Can you expound and explain yeah. that as fully yeah. as possible? <laughs> Especially carnivals for some reason. And, you know, carnivals used to be very different. Now we go and take a bunch of rides, but it used to be a bunch of shows, and you would have circuses there and mermaid shows and fat lady shows, and where they would literally compete to see who is the heaviest, and girls turning into gorillas, and, you know, monkey races and the whole nine yards. I still have all those in Wisconsin. I, I still feel like we have all of those in Wisconsin. <laughs> That's why I'm here, right? <laughs> right exactly. Something had to draw me here. And um, the, especially the old timers will often talk about UFOs hovering above the old shows. And back to Ward Hall, who in the World of Wonders, who was the first guy I worked for, told me one day that there was a giant UFO that came and just hovered above his show and watched. Now, outside of a side tree, a little stage out front where there's free shows to test people to come in to buy a ticket. And it just hovered there watching what was happening. And I don't know if that these other beings are just fascinated by this transient lifestyle. And I feel like maybe there is some kind of, you know, maybe they feel like they're kindred spirits, if they're transient going through the universe, that we have these beings on the earth that are just bouncing from place to place. Or maybe they just want a good show. Who knows? Right. Or, or maybe they just see the tent as a target. Right. Like, maybe. <laughs> look at this. Look. Look at this thing land here, guys. Right. <laughs> well, exactly. what about alien abduction? I mean, because you would think, you know, if they're really studying the population, they would, um, you know, want some variety uh, right. in their subjects every once in a while. Right. And, uh, you know, what I think next abducting someone from the Olympics, it's hard to get some, a more physically fit specimen than the circus. You know, you look at some of those trapeze artists, and that's a pretty good. Uh, Test material, or you know, I don't know. Maybe they want some exotic sex slaves with some weird abilities. Who knows? <laughs> right. That's, that's like what, you do. If I'm trolling the universe, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, okay. So show folk, or mm-hmm. like theater true. I mean, nobody is more superstitious than theater people. Right. Yeah. Are circus folk the same way with superstitions and stories yeah. and like? Yeah. Some of my favorite superstitions come from circus. And, like, if a bird flies underneath a big top, someone's going to die. Oh, that's nice. You're right. Yeah, it's it's super pleasant. The idea of if, if, if a bird flies into your house, that means death. Yeah. Well, okay, so a bird flies into the big top. And I think when I was reading a little bit of your bio, Logan, 
Aren't you an expert on people that have died at the circus? I love dead people. I have dead people in my house, both physically. I have some mummies and stuff. And then I'm pretty sure this house is full of actual spirit. And part, I think, of the reason people have been attracted to the circus for two millennia now. You know, I started to see ancient Romans and ladies beat each other to death or be mauled by lions was it lets us get close to death without experiencing it ourselves. You know, it's the jaws of the lion, like the head and the jaws right. of the lion is totally a, a thing. Yeah. We're not necessarily beating slaves to death anymore, uh, thankfully. But w- when you see somebody jumping off a pedestal 50 feet in the air, hoping their partner's going to catch them, or going in that cage of 12 lives and tigers, or shoving a sword down their throat, you're watching people risk life and death in front of your eyes. And sometimes, you, you know, I know aerialists. Um, one of my old bosses, Elvin Bale, he was a daredevil and a, he ended up, he's paralyzed because of an accident gone wrong. When he was up in the air, he would hear people yelling, fall. And people want to go and see what death is like without, you know, having to get close to experiencing it themselves. That's interesting. I mean, First of all, if I was the guy doing that aerial maneuver and somebody yells fall, I would find that guy later and punch him in his face. <laughs> yeah. That's a funny thing, too, though. It reminds me of a story of the, the song Jump by Van Halen. So I always thought that the song Jump was like about a happy thing. Jump! Right, yeah. No, really, David Lee Ross said that he was watching the news and there was a guy on the ledge in Los Angeles. And he goes, there's always somebody in the crowd that says, jump, do it. Go ahead, jump. Oh, man. And so that's where the song came from. So when you said that guy in the crowd while the aerialist is performing this deadly maneuver and more than anything needs to be, you know, have the have the will of the people help. Behind him, yeah. Right, right. the psychic energy behind him. Instead, there's some jackass. There's some going, detractor there. You got to fall, buddy. Yeah. yeah. So th- that's that's the whole range of humanity there, you right. know, that right. we've been talking from the, about. From the best to the worst. That that's right. But yeah, so so the idea of being able to put your head in the lion's mouth and surviving. Mm-hmm. Is, again, about the triumph of the human spirit, right? Right. And but it's also how close can we get to the edge? And there's a thrill and I think people see I mean that's why we in, we love trapeze. That's why we love, you know, people taming lions. You know, cuz mm-hmm. these are fierce, crazy unknowable animals that we think of. We think of them as wild. So that's skewing towards the paranormal, I would think, because, you know, the unknown, the other, you know, the animal. The the fact that you, or the fire, you know, the fire and the the rings, um, you know, the primal aspect of life, the the shadow side, that that you're you're coming very close to it um, and emerging victorious. Well, Logan, have you had any kind of experiences when you're working in the circus? Have you in particular had any experiences that you can't explain? Well, I, I think this is the first one I've ever publicly told this story. Hey. All right, an exclusive. Yeah, we were driving in Michigan, and I was following um, the elephant trailer, and we were jump, jumping into Cadillac, Michigan, I believe it was. It was the middle of the night, and to this day, I've never been able to explain it. And I'm, I start seeing somebody walking across the semi, and this moving elephant semi in front of me. And uh, a man gets to the edge of the semi and jumps off and flies right above my car. Okay, so you're moving, right? We're moving. Vehicles are Mm -hmm. moving, and you see this person 
walking on top of the semi like in some action movie. Right. Like Speed or something right. like that when they're right. on top of the bus battling each other. Right. Or like all those um, cowboy movies, you know, where they're, they're the, the wrestling train. on top of the train. Yeah, so they're punching it, each other on top of the train. It's similar to that, but is, is a person running or just walking? You know, it, it just seemed like they were walking. And they got to the end. They took off, swooped down in front of my car, and kept going. And I immediately slammed on my brakes and swerved right, off the road. So Jean-Claude Van Damme is flying in front of you. So is this like a Mothman-type creature? or, or This is the only like thing wings? I can come up with is the Mothman. And, you know, I swerved off the road. They clearly saw me in their rear view wheels swerve off. And I asked them if they saw anything, and they said, no, it's homie Logan, you're just hired. You're, you're hallucinating because we've been driving so long. And maybe, maybe that's the case. But I never felt anything so real before. And then when I told my mother, she pretty much wanted to commit me to a psychiatric ward. But I really think that what there was some being entity that I don't know if we were just in the middle of his flight pattern was fascinated or maybe it was some kind of a guardian angel. But, you know, there is a whole history of flying humanoids. And and where yeah. was this? What area of the country? C- Cadillac, Michigan. Cadillac, Cadillac Michigan. Michigan. Okay, that's right. And so what did the person look like? I mean, what can you recall? Yeah, did he have acne? Was he good looking? I, I mean, I don't, if he asked me out for a date, I probably would have said yes out of curiosity. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> Absolutely, we all would have said yes. <laughs> I'm like, all right. So I'm like, let's go, green man. Are you flying or am I driving? That's right. <laughs> right. If he's flying, then obviously I'm going wherever he's going. Right. So was You're- he green? You know, I really, I think he was green, but that's my skeptical side of me is thinking maybe that even if he wasn't green, I've painted him as green because, you know, people try to put the cookie cutter and try to match something up. And to me, that's the mock man. And being green ain't easy. Well, all right. But then there's that whole backstory of the green man. Oh, right. The the, the bride of the May Queen. What time of year was this? This would have been in the spring of... 2011. Beltane. There we go. Right, you saw <laughs> oh the green man. Oh my gosh. You saw the green man and he flies. Nice. Is there anything the green man can't do? <laughs> so that's amazing. The thing that sticks out to me vividly to this day was his eyes were just glowing and they were huge. And I just felt like, completely exposed. Like I felt like he looked through me entirely. And what color were they glowing? They were like a, a reddish glow to them. And I just, I don't care to ever see it again, whatever it was. I mean, unless I can convince them to come out here to the Wondertorium and be my special oh my guest. Oh, God. That's like right. having a close encounter with Spring Hill Jack. That's also what it's reminding me of. What's Spring Hill Jack? Okay, so um, in Victorian London, there was this crazy, like, masher who um, was going around to people uh, on the streets of London and, you know, going after women kind of thing, but also just roughing people up. But then when the police chased him, he would perform these incredible feats of of leaping over uh, hills and fences and, and whatever. You know, they weren't able to capture Spring Hill Jack. So he became like a fixture of the Penny Dreadfuls at the time. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so like the Green Man, Spring Hill Jack. I know. Be, I'm getting I'm getting so many connections anybody here. Anybody huh? <laughs> here in Cadillac, Michigan. Well, that's exciting. So, and nobody else believed you, uh, Logan. Nobody else on the uh, in the well, show believed you. Nobody. You so people are very ambiguous a lot of times. 
They said, oh, no, you were probably just, you know, you're tired, your mind's playing tricks on you. But in the next breath, they would go and they would talk about how these beings have visited shows for all, there were shows. And right. so, you know, they were trying to discount me, but at the same time, you know, they wanted to believe because of the stories, you know, they've been brought up with and the legend of these beings following these shows, especially these show families from Eastern Europe. They were chock full of, you know, all these superstitions and legends. So what kind of beings would follow the show? So we got, you know, possibility of a Spring Hill Jack type character. Or maybe, UFO. Maybe Faye, maybe Alien. We don't know. Maybe. Could be the same thing. Um, yeah. But what, what other kinds of creatures were have been seen by circus folk or sideshow folk? Well, carnival people were have always been very convinced. A lot of the old timers, because we work sideshows at fairs a lot, and those old timer carnival people come up and tell me that the old sideshows would have shapeshifters. Ooh, a shapeshifter. Yeah, they would say that a lot of them were Native American shapeshifters, and that's how they performed the miraculous transformations in the actual shows. So there's a history of skinwalkers being part of the the show. Yeah. Or at least, you know, legend. Right. Well, an interesting connection there, though, is when we we were talking about Harry Houdini before. And, you know, um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle actually thought that Harry Houdini was real magic. And he's like, no, 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 you're real magic, baby. Don't deny it. You know your magic. (laughs) And that reminds me of Philip K. Dick, because he he wrote about a a performing psychic who actually was a real psychic, but you got to make a living. And so he was a performer in Vegas. So the Skinwalkers thing is funny because it makes me think about how magicians actually used to try to sell their powers as supernatural. That's right, except for Harry Houdini, who broke the mold and tried to show people that there was technique behind what he was doing and and not magic. You know, when we talk about the Eastern European families and the Eastern European stuff, are there anything particular like that that came over with them from the old country or something where they would say like, you know, we came, but also... The vampires came. Also, (laughs) Baba Yaga came with us. Baba Yaga. (laughs) Well, there was one family who claimed they had a ghost that came or a spirit named Lavinia that followed with them. And they thought that she was living in one of their trunks. And they had these old great steamer trunks, just like you picture, uh, you know, mm-hmm. show people having. And they said that this Lavinia um, was actually an opera star in Romania. And, um, you know, especially in Europe, you, it, was very, it was very common to have, you know, opera singers and acrobats all on the same playbill. It was very, you know, vaudeville before vaudeville was vaudeville. Sure. And um, that they said that she loved performing and so that her spirit kind of stuck with the, their ancestors who had worked with her and she will follow them around. And what I find striking about the story is people who worked on shows with them that weren't related to them would once in a while, because they knew they were, you know, Romanian, they would be like, hey, this Romanian girl, Lavinia, was over by the ticket box looking for you guys. And they would all have the same description of this girl, and she was short, about 4'11", and a long black, uh, you know, ponytail with pale skin and beautiful blue eyes. And that she was somehow showing herself intentionally, or maybe, you know, accidentally, she would get excited, and she would kind of, you know, make herself known to all these other show people that had no idea of these stories until they told, you know, went back to the family, said, Lavinia, the Romanian girl is looking for you. And then they said, oh, don't worry, she's been dead for 300 years or however long that was. 
Oh, that's great. Oh, that, that is an awesome story. Encounters with Lavinia. Yes. Yeah. So tell us, I want to hear more about the shapeshifters. I just can't help myself. All right. She's so a, she's... so whatever details you have there, please share. Yeah. So one of my favorite, I guess, stories, and it wasn't even that great of a story. It was just a guy, you know, some old carnies are just, they are characters. Like this guy, you know, Confederate flag tattooed across his chest, probably 70 years old at this point, married to a young 24-year-old black girl who works games, just full of, How does that work? Confederate flag, and then... Right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. paradox. Yeah. He's a states' rights confederate. He's not a slavery (laughs) confederate. He's all states' rights. All right, Right. exactly. And he walked up to my ticket box one day, and we were all just kind of sitting out in front of the ticket box. It was a really slow day. It was in Elmora, Indiana. And he goes, there used to only be two types of people inside shows. Homosexuals, is, ha- is how he pronounced it. Homosexuals are those engines who would change into the beast. Wow. And I had looked around at my show, and I think four of my five cast were, you know, homosexuals. And I'm like, well, things haven't changed that much. <laughs> I'd say that they were, once again, Native Americans. They all went back to Native American shifters. Every carny story I ever heard. And there, there was one young lady who would turn into a panther during the show. And now... Cat people. That's like manimal. Well, that's like the, the cat people with Isabella Rosalini, too. Oh, yeah. Don't or forget. the original Val Luton's cat people from 1942. I'm sorry. Go on. The go on. Po- culture yeah. references are flowing it's, and we can't help ourselves, but tell us more. That's awesome. No, I enjoy it. Um, and he said that, you know, as they would show up throughout the town, bizarre molly, you know, livestock would happen. And that he was always convinced it was her. And because, you know, they would be in Maine and sheep would be mauled at the neighboring farm from, and it looked like, you know, a, a tiger or a panther or something had ate them. But obviously we weren't having panthers in Maine at that point. Right. And he was very convinced that she was just kind of hiding out in the sideshow and she was some bloodthirsty shapeshifter and that, and in the story, he was back and forth between if she was actually some kind of like vampire wolverine type of hybrid that was just bloodthirsty and hiding out and turning animals to go attack. And then kind of his little, I guess, her redemption in his mind, there was a big carnival slash town person fight on the midway, just quite frequent. And that the, the panther had shown up you know, on the so midway. So it's like a rumble? Yeah. And a you rumble. know why there's a rumble? It's because it's so darn hard to get a stuffed animal in those, in those <laughs> best, you know, in the, in the fair games. Like, and they're all rigged against us. So the townies just go nuts and riot. Normally, I would say it's just your garden variety townie prejudice. But if it's on the midway, I can tell you exactly why. And it's because <laughs> it's because you thought you hit three balloons in a row with your dart and you still didn't get the damn bunny. Right. And it used to be even more, you know. There used to be so much more just sliminess in the carnivals. There's, there's an old carnival family, and this was only in the 50s, I think, where the daughter worked in the girls' show. And, you know, they used to have these strip shows that traveled to Fair Circuit. And her husband, who was the manager, would sell keys to her trailer for after teardown to all of these guys to come and, you know, have a one-on-one session with a beautiful dancing girl. But what they would do is they would pull the trailer out before the fair would leave. So all of these guys would show up with keys that they just paid, I don't know, five bucks for or whatever. And the girl would be gone. I love that, though. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They deserved it. 
<laughs> yeah, they <laughs> called the county marked because it was. Yeah. They, and they would say, and I, I don't know how I've never done the research and if this actually happened, but the old I was always saying because they would have people going through the crowds and they would like mark people with white chalk on the back or whatever that they thought would be easy pickpocket targets for the pickpocket or you know, oh. or whatever scale they were running. So tell us more about the rumble on the midway. Yes, let's go back to the rumble on the midway that the Panther showed up at. Yes, so there was the, the big rumble Panther. on the midway and um, this full out people beating the out of each other. Um, some of the one of the game joints got knocked over, and it was starting to turn pretty brutal. And he said that this panther showed up on the midway and set all the townspeople just running. You know, they weren't going to get mauled by, you know, this panther. So that's when those had already been blood spilled and, you know, blood in the air. And that as soon as those townspeople left, that panther turned around and walked right back to where it came from. And he thought it was this, this woman who, you know, she turned herself back to the panther kind of saved the day, didn't want anyone to get killed, didn't want any problems on the midway, didn't want, you know, the fuzz there uh, to cause any problems. And put herself out there. And, you know, the whole idea of cat people, so there's that movie Cat People, but um, there's also lore about were panthers and you know some of it even even going back to 19th century uh early 20th century england yeah mysterious universe a podcast favorite of ours did a whole segment on um cat people being seen in some kind of you know ancient mystical tradition of turning into cats well i would love to see a sideshow where somebody turns into an animal right now was that cat person what heritage was she of they said she was Native American. So she she was a Native person. Yeah, and I've never, to my not, that I can remember at least, I've never heard a Kanye story talking about, uh, you know, some type of shapeshifter that was not a Native American. They were, almost, they were always Native Americans. So no Eastern European werewolves. No, I never heard of that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So the, the idea of the shapeshifters and the skinwalkers in the sideshow. Besides Lavinia, so let's let's finish it up on what do you think is your favorite ghost story or paranormal story that has to do with the big top or a sideshow? Probably my favorite paranormal story uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus was set on fire, trapping 10,000 people inside. The arsonists knew when they were bringing the big cats on that because the big cats shoot some of the entrances and exits will be blocked. And during World War II, lots of materials were not available, so the tents were no longer fireproof. Yes, because of rationing, right? Right, exactly. And trapping 10,000 people. And hundreds, mostly children, perished in the fire. Who torched the place again? Like, why It was did they, never why did they... 100% confirmed. I believe it was someone traveling with the show. Maybe a few weeks prior, someone burnt down the menagerie tent in Cleveland, Ohio. And I think he was testing it out. But it was somebody traveling with the show, I'm pretty sure. And so people were jumping on these bleachers trying to get out. And there's a group of children who swore they saw an angel open up the sidewall and let them out. And what is kind of interesting, I think, is that none of those kids had ever, not anyone was super public with their stories, but they spoke at various circus bank conventions and things like that. And none of them ever changed their story. It was just one of the most consistent in the details of how the angel looked in the whole nine yards. Well, how did the angel look? Can you give us a little bit more Yeah, details? they said green, the angel... Green with red glowing eyes. <laughs> no, green with red glowing eyes. That's no, no. Man. They said the angel 
they couldn't quite tell if it was a man or a woman. It was very ambiguous, sexually, or gender, I should say, not sexually. Androgynous, yes. Yeah, you figure an angel doesn't have the junk. Right. Right. Um, that makes sense. They, they all said it was about six foot, six foot five, and never to appear to have touched the ground. And they said it was just an absolute glowing. And the one lady I got to talk to um, towards the end of her life, and she said it was like the show Touched by an Angel, where they light up their head, but it wasn't only, you know, his or her head lit up, it was the entire body. Wow. She was one of the witnesses, and you actually got to talk to her? Right, yeah. And she said that, you know, thank goodness that angel was lit up because the tent was so dark from smoke and chaos. Even if that angel was standing there, I don't think we would have saw him without the light. And then my second paranormal story with that fire, they had these steel tiger shoot pieces that people were blocking the entrance. So people were literally piling into them. It was a stampede and getting pushed and trampled. And I worked in a, a house museum that had one of the pieces of the tiger shoot there and you would take pictures of it and you would see all kinds of images pop back. You know, sometimes you just get thousands of orbs. I know orbs are controversial in the paranormal community if they're actual, you know, if it's a being or not. You get all kinds of orbs. You would get pictures of almost things that look like faces back. And anytime people use any ghost hunting equipment, whether it be like a ghost meter pro, just like, you know, super advanced equipment. Anytime it went near that fence, everybody's ghost equipment would go bonkers. And there was so much energy left there. So a tiger shoot is where the tiger would come into the tent. Right. So today right. we push them in rolling cages. So the tigers will have a big enclosure outside and you put them in essentially giant dog carriers on wheels, as I call them, and we push them. That wasn't always the case. You'd have the tiger enclosure outside, and they would literally build like a steel tunnel, a steel cage tunnel from the tiger enclosure into the big tunnel. And that's how they moved the tigers in, how they moved the bears in, if it was a caged bear act. So it wasn't a structure that you could easily take down. It wasn't super tall. It was probably maybe only five feet tall, but a five-foot steel structure with tigers, you know, it wasn't something easily scaled either. And so the tigers would come through. And so this is the place people were trying to escape through. And we still have a piece of it. And then right. we'll take a picture of it. That's when you see the orbs and faces. So, so much energy from that catastrophic, tragic event is imprinted onto on... the tiger shoot. That's mm-hmm. right. That, when you, that, that for some reason, cameras can pick up traces of that well, energy. And then other paranormal equipment yeah. like it sounds you know like it's given off emf which wouldn't make sense unless you know it was electrical <laughs> right right and it's uh, a piece of metal right is it right. metal or what? yeah it's just metal yes and you know it was almost it ended up in the circus museum in, in indiana excuse me peru indiana they didn't want it because of the nature of the piece which is totally not how I operate. I see like my museum as the island of misfit toys. I want all of that stuff. Right, you want all the orphans. But it was just in a junk pile. And then... Um, so did you get it? Do you have it? I did it? not get it, unfortunately. The Owl Ringling Mansion oh. in Baraboo has it. And they rescued it. Oh, so you so you can go see it in Baraboo? You can go see it in Baraboo. I don't know if it's still on display. It's been a couple of years since I worked over there. But it used to be set up in the foyer on the second level. And I did the ghost tours there from time to time. And that was one of the just most, I can't even describe 
the feeling I would get near it or the people around it would get. It was just very, you could tell that piece was, you know, quote unquote alive. There was something so was happening like with it. Wow. So let's get into your location. When you talked about the uh, the Ringling Theater, the Ringling Mansion, the Ringling Brothers. And and your Wondertorium. It's right. all in the connection of Baraboo. And yes. the Ringling Brothers, who we get the Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey, Triple I Shrine Circus, you know, with all the, all the na- it's got as many names as a, uh, like a football stadium. But uh, so you take the, the Ringling Brothers, Al Ringling, have a connection right to Baraboo, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And in Wisconsin, we have this thing called uh, to the Great Circus Parade, where all the circus cars leave Baraboo, go to Milwaukee, and then through downtown Milwaukee, you have the Great Circus Parade. And we've talked about the Great Circus Parade in this podcast many times. And Ernest Borgnine. And, and, and Ernest Borgnine. Can't forget about him. But also the Circus World Museum is in Baraboo. In Baraboo. So mm-hmm. like Baraboo, Wisconsin is like a circus. Circus Mecca. And Circus Peanuts are only made in Wisconsin, too. Oh, God. So it all connects to Wisconsin's (laughs) Wisconsin's Circus Connection. I agree with you on a lot, Logan, but not (laughs) Circus Peanuts. (laughs) So do you think your Wondertorium has any kind of paranormal activity associated with it? Yeah. So we moved the Wondertorium into its first, you know, year-round permanent home this fall. And we're located on Broadway Street in downtown Wisconsin Dells, which I always say is Baraboo's bigger, splashier brother. Right. <laughs> and Kind of like you, Mike. <laughs> the house that we moved the Wendy Troy in was built in the 1930s by the Landry family, which operated as a funeral home. And they lived upstairs. And it was a funeral home for many years. He was also the only ambulance driver for a time. And people would joke when, you know, the, the funeral business was slow, he'd drive extra slow to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have the Wondertorium here. And as soon as you thought we were going in here, the ghost story started coming. And I thought, oh boy, what do we get ourselves into? Oh, you love it, Logan. Come I on do, now. but it, you know, when you know <laughs> you're putting your life's work in the facility, that, you know, maybe there's some That's angry true. ghost rumbling around. It's a little. You don't want you know, there to be any phantom fires. Right. Yeah. You know, away. Um, and right away, um, we moved in, and little things started to happen. And the owner of the facility that we're, we're leasing it from was over and asked um, if my partner, Angel, was seeing anything anymore. Because he kept saying he was seeing images or having nightmares, and said he saw a woman in a rocking chair. And um, I- I'm telling her that about the woman in the rocking chair. And she goes, oh, my goodness, that sounds just like Janet. I said, who's Janet? She goes, she was the Landry's daughter who was born and died in this house. They call her the crazy cat lady. And she really didn't deserve that because she had very high quality, world-class show cat. Beautiful, she probably still was crazy. <laughs> but nobody deserves that cat lady title. No, she was like a professional cat. <laughs> because all us cat. cat ladies are awesome, I'm here to tell you. Yeah, I love cats. Um, we have one <laughs> that we just got to please Janet. But, uh, so I just, oh. and, and so I told him the story. I said, you know, I am the world's most skeptical ghost tour provider, paranormal entertainer. I think 90% of the stories I hear, at least, are bogus. But I love it. I love the paranormal. I love ghosts. I love the whole nine yards. I said, I really don't think this house is haunted. I said, there's no carpet in it. It's all wood floors. The walls are thin. We're downtown bells. You can literally hear people talking at the gas station in the living room sometimes. So I think it's people's imaginations. It's an old funeral home. And she goes, yeah, probably right. And the owner leaves. And I'm sitting on the couch with a friend. And above the fireplace, we have a three and a half by five foot painting. And that painting lifts off the wall, 
flies out about three feet and comes crashing down. Yeah. And you saw it straight on, right, Logan? We saw it. I saw it straight on. And, you know, if it would have just fallen off the fireplace, you know, the painting side would have landed face down. That painting landed face up because when it came out, it lifted something, lifted it up. So that, that painting side stayed in the air and it came crashing down on a glass bottle. And that put a hole through it. And you can still see where it came. It's punctured, you know, outwards. And so was it hovering for a moment? It was. It hovered. It like somebody lifted it? It lifted. It literally going? looked like somebody took one arm, you know, on each side of the painting, pulled it off the wall like you would do it, and then she lifted it up and just dropped it in a set of bridge. Awesome. And then the next day, we come home. I'll send you the picture so maybe you can put it up on your website. Um, yes. And somebody, it was probably a two-foot cross has been carved into our wood floor. Oh, that's annoying because wood floors are expensive. Uh, yes, really, I know. Really that was my biggest pet peeve. He said, I don't know who's here, but if you feel like you need to damage something, please don't damage something that's original in this house. That I can't replace. Right. Yeah. Can't you just paint the wall or something? Like, right. If yeah. you really want to make your presence known, yeah. paint Don't the flash my tire floor. or something. <laughs> you know? So people can find the Wondertorium in the downtown Wisconsin Dells. That's right. And what kind of things will they find there? Yeah. So we, if you come during regular business hours, um, we're going we're, we're gonna to open up here for tours. And we'll start off on a guided tour through our Museum of Oddities, which... We tell the story of Bachos and Bachos through our artifacts. And then we, all of those subjects that if these things were still in existence, would cover. So we have everything from dinosaur bones to Marcos the headless chicken who lives without a head to shrunken You heads. have a big mammoth tooth. We have a mammoth tooth, which is one of my favorites. And this year we have a new display with authentic woolly mammoth wool and comparing it to elephant hair. Wow. So that's really fun. We have live animals. We have uh, live four-legged fish. We have uh, my favorite project in the world. We are the only facility, public facility, with Cymodonian cave roaches, the species of cockroach we discovered in um, Africa uh, in the last wow. well, it's been 10 years now. Two years later, the species was declared extinct in the wild because the caves they lived in were blown up for mining. I'm being oh, cockroaches. Oh. Most zoos have no interest in them, unfortunately. I keep trying to get some zoos to take some on. Hey, hey, how about fourth grade classrooms? Yeah, fourth grade I will send some up. Like, I have some like... in a classroom in Eau Claire right now. Oh, that nice. would be great. Yeah, they're wonderful. They're beautiful. Let's keep them alive. Do they there's hit? only four or five private breeders of them than ourselves, keeping the species alive. So we have a full, it's very rounded a museum tour. Then after the museum tour, you sit down, and I'm going to do a live show for you. Maybe you'll stand on my face. Um, like you did, Allison, and Broken Glass. <laughs> yes! I eat fire. Um, we have the electric chair where we put a uh, person in a working electric chair. They have like light bulbs off their forehead. Yeah, oh, so yeah. I did that. Yeah. I did that. Isn't that and, cool? And um, I'm still alive somehow. You're still alive. Well, we <laughs> think you're still alive. Who knows? <laughs> right. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I went now I'm learning to juggle ping pong balls in my mouth to do kind of an alternative juggling ad. So that tour lasts the whole thing about an hour. And then afterwards, you're free to roam around. And then this year, um, for the summer season, we are going to do ghost hunting at the Wonderatorium nightly. And oh, um, yeah. we're going to come in. We'll keep, show you the house. We'll take you down. We'll show you the elevator where they place the bodies up and down uh, from and show the embalming room. And 
to the history of the house, the history of paranormal investigation, and then we're going to set you free and let you investigate your house yourself with ghost hunting equipment. And hopefully, be able to make a paranormal experience for yourself. Oh my god! That sounds awesome. So, where can people find you online so they can find more details about Mr. Marvel's Wondertorium? So we are online www.wondertorium.com. Information on the ghost tours as well. There, we're on Facebook, facebook.com/wondertorium. Give us a like. We're also on Instagram. We will be opening weekends here throughout the winter, and the summer will be open on a daily basis, except Tuesdays. We are always closed Tuesdays. Always have been, always will. Don't come on a Tuesday. All right. And so, everybody, you can also find a link to Logan's pretty awesome Mr. Marvel Wondertorium in the Wisconsin Dells. You'll be able to find that at the show notes for this episode at othersidepodcast.com slash 120. That's othersidepodcast.com slash 120. Logan Marvel, thank you so much for your fascinating time today. Next time we do an interview, we're going to do it in person at the Wondertorium, and we're going to take it to ourselves. Oh, I can't wait. Logan, we just love you. Love you to bits. I love you guys. I can't wait for you guys to come up here and see everything. What a pleasant guy, that Logan Marvel. Yeah, and what an interesting person to talk to. Unlike any other person I've ever heard you interview. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think so, too. Like, you know, I, you know, we know a lot of musicians who be like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like running away and joining the circus. Kind of. But I mean, he really did run away and join the circus. <laughs> so. Yeah. And to hear that perspective uh, was just very interesting. So, Logan, thank you for being on the show. And Allison, thank you for being on the show. And I look forward to checking out the Wondertorium. That's right. We're going to have to do a field trip to the Dell sometime where you can step on our necks. Definitely. Yes, for sure. So the song this week, we were putting together some stuff. We were thinking about that whole feeling of running away, joining the circus, escaping. And if you have a choice between living that standard life of quiet desperation or running away, joining the circus, and being part of the freak show, well, I tell you what we do here anytime. This song's called I'd Rather Be a Freak. I'd rather be a freak. I'd rather be a freak. Well, I've seen a million snowflakes in just out that unique song. I'd rather be a freak. Let's hear it for the weirdos who never
you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at OthersidePodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. What, 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 what? what? We can't forget our Patreons. Oh, never. I think about them every day. I'm not lying. I do. I do think about our patrons every day. Let me tell you that. And one of the patrons we want to thank today is Ned. That's right, Ned. Thanks for your pledge at the level where you get a shout out every single episode. And thanks to all of our patrons, which you can join if you'd like at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. So come where the cool kids are and check out our Patreon community. And we'll see you guys next week. Yeah, I don't know. The music man's pretty exciting. He said dull. <laughs> oh, okay. And, th- and things don't get dull in River City. <laughs> That's true. <laughs>